We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Sorted Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at a new release, 2020's The Vast of Night, directed by Andrew Patterson and written by James Montague and Craig W. Sanger. Here's a clip from The Vast of Night. Number please. Hello? Is this way? Large object holding over my land. Like a This is WOTW Radio in Cayuga, New Mexico, and this is the news for the hour. Uh, what would you like to tell us about yourself? I don't know. Cool. Aren't you like some big science girl? Tell me about science. It's Faye. I'm a sound came through the board and interrupted your radio show. What sound? What's going on, Everett? 718 here at WOTW. We got a sound we'd like to play that seems to be bouncing around the valley tonight. Yes, I have a story that might be helpful. I can tell you what's going on sound we heard out in the desert. It was coming from thousands of feet higher than anything could fly. They've come here before. They've liked this place. They always have. It's 7.45 p.m. and we may have something that'll need something for What? We found it from Colt Canyon. Who's that? It's Everett. Stop smiling. What's he doing here? He's helping me. Stop smiling. Get in! It's outside of town! Come on, come on, come on! Hey, come on! Something's up there now. It's something talking. And they don't stay for long. Hey! Everett, take the wheel! What's going on? There's something in the sky. All right, that was a clip from Andrew Patterson's The Vast of Night, uh, which just released on Amazon Prime. And according to our guest, Stephen Silver has been playing at a few drive-in movie theaters uh, across the country, which is actually perfect. Uh, mm. Joining me is Stephen Silver, uh, contributor at Goombastop.com. <laughs> how's it going? Good, good. And then, of course, also joining me is Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? Hello, Stephen. Welcome back to the podcast. Oh, I appreciate it. It's good to be back. All right, we got a nice little genre movie here. This is the kind of movie that I can envision the Sword Cinema podcast doing uh, over and over and over again. These ones are always kind of a pleasure to do. But, Rick, The Vast of Night was your choice. Uh, so I got to ask, is this, this is the story of a, of a, a signal that is intercepted by a small town, uh, well, I guess, switchboard operator first, and then, uh, then radio DJ, um, that sort of leads into more mystery, all on the night of a big basketball game. 
Uh, Rick, why did you pick this movie? How did you come to know about this movie? Well, so the movie actually played at the Toronto International Film Festival. Actually, sorry, it st- it, it originally premiered at Slamdance and later made its way to TIFF. And I wanted to see it at TIFF and I didn't have a chance to see it at TIFF, but it played at Festival du Nouveau Cinema, which is basically baby TIFF here in Montreal. It takes place about two weeks after TIFF, plays the same movies, has TIFF, if you were ever in Montreal, in October, check it out. The point is, I saw this movie at the festival, and I, I, it caught my interest right away when I saw it at Slamdance. Because the thing about Slamdance is, it is the type of film festival that plays these really low budget, <clears throat> sorry, these really low budget films that don't really make a big splash. Like they don't tend to, you know. They don't tend to become very successful. No offense to Slam Dance, right? Usually, like, it's not to say you won't find good first-time features, but this movie, for some reason, just sort of, I don't know, it just it just became a huge hit at the film festivals. And so I saw it at the Festival de Nouveau Cinema, and I fell in love with it. And it's not that it's a perfect film, it's not the greatest film in the world, but it's because it's a really good example of a great first-time feature. You have this filmmaker who's making his first movie, does not have a lot of money, he shoots it in 17 days, and he has a very small cast. Most of the people in this movie aren't even actors, they're just people that happen to live in the town that they filmed in, filmed at somewhere in like New Mexico. And yet he found some really innovative, effective, really super cool Uh, amazing ways to bring this movie to life starting with for example the camera work and the cinematography so like for a low budget first time feature there is this incredible tracking shot maybe the best tracking shot of any movie that will be released this year and that includes hollywood blockbusters in which the camera follows uh, well, it doesn't really follow a character. It, it, it goes from one character, the young girl, who happens to work at the switchboard at the... She's like a telephone operator, right? Yeah, we should say this is most likely in the early 50s, I'm guessing. Maybe a 60s? I think, late, I think it's late 50s. I want to say like... Late, late 50s? I think okay. the, the descriptions have been like the, towards the weenie days of the 50s or something like that. So I think it's probably supposed to be like 58 or 59. Exactly. It says uh, in the twilight of the 1950s, the plot synopsis. So uh, Faye, the young girl, she works as a switchboard operator and the camera goes from where she works and works its way up to the radio station, which is across town. And so it's like a four and a half minute tracking shot as a camera roams through the town, you know, under fences, like through traffic and eventually ends up uh, going into like this gymnasium in which there's a basketball game happening and then ends up at the radio station where, which is where we meet the, uh, the second protagonist, uh, Everett. And anyways, it's the point is it's just incredible, incredible tracking shot. Right. And I remember at the Q and a, like my first question I had, I had two questions. My first question was how in the world did you do that camera shot? Considering you had such a small budget, you made this movie in 17 days. Was it CGI? Like, how did you do it? And, and she said, um, at the Q&A, by the way, it was the the actress, Sierra McCormick, who plays Faye. So she replied, she told me, well, she told the audience, she said that basically they hired some teenage boy in the town who happened to own a go-kart. And they mounted the camera on the go-kart. And the teenage boy was the driver 
while the cameraman somehow got on the go-kart with the camera and followed the action through the town from to go from one lo uh, one location to the next location and what i love about that one shot is it really gives a sense of geography about this small town because the entire film takes place in a small town and we've seen a lot of movies do this right but you know a lot of times when you watch horror films and you're like well wait a minute how did a killer get from there to here in like two minutes right like there's no sense of geography you especially have i especially have this criticism when i'm watching a michael bay film when it comes to the action sequences and and this sort of like solves it it gives us an understanding of what this town is like and it brings the town to life anyways that is just one of the reasons why i chose this movie i want to know what you guys think well, first of all, Stephen, where did you first see this movie? Well, I first saw it about whenever I had the screener, which was probably about two or three weeks ago. Um, it was at the uh, Philadelphia Film Festival, which is last late October of last year. I did not get to see it there. I had kind of had it on my list of movies that I wanted to see at the festival, but I didn't really, I didn't get a chance to go. And I think yeah, like sometimes when you're covering a festival, you 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 kind of you do your priorities. Maybe there's one night where you can't see anything or you're seeing something else that night. And your, your backup is to ask the publicist for a screener. And for a lot of the time they say yes. And I think on this one, for whatever reason, they didn't give me one. So I just kind of had heard good things from that festival. And then I heard it was coming to Amazon. And I think it was actually on uh, VOD via Amazon for a couple weeks before it actually went on to prime. Um, but yeah, I got the screener and I watched it. I was like, wow, this is, this is pretty incredible. This is, um, this is a filmmaker who really, you can tell he knows what he's doing. It's a first-time guy who, I assume he's young, I don't know how old he is, but he seems to, appears to be a, a relatively young guy, who, with so little money to spend, just has such a great sense of creating a shot, creating a great shot, creating a great visual style, you know, like you said, you know, building the world of this town. And you can tell what a lot of the influences are, the Twilight Zone, obviously, uh, American Graffiti, the stuff at the beginning with the cars reminded me a lot of that. Uh, Close Encounters, of course. Uh, I think he said in interviews that uh, Richard Linkletter was a, was kind of an inspiration. Uh, I in can see of the, that. A lot of meandering season. talking. He said his he said his pitch was imagine if Richard Linklater directed Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah, I, I see that for sure. Um, and the other big one, of course, is David Lynch and specifically Twin Peaks. Like I I kept being reminded of. Um, the episode of Twin Peaks, The Return, where they go to the town at the end when the guy says, got a light. It was uh, that insane episode in the return season with the... Um, episode 8. Episode 8, which is, yeah. Which, um, when they go to the town at the end, which I might have been New Mexico now that I think about it. Um, it was. It really, yeah. Uh, which I guess is supposed to recall Roswell, and this movie as well is supposed to recall Roswell. But, um, and just the whole David Lynch thing with Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks as well, where it's, you know taking these images of classical Americana, like a high school gymnasium and a basketball game and cheerleaders, and then making it really dark and kind of showing the underbelly below that. And so that was, uh, so I liked, I mean, I liked how I was able to balance, you know, just showing a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, of its inspirations and homages, but not really copying any of them together. It was kind of coming up with a visual style all its own. So I was uh, really impressed with this film and I, I'm excited to see what this filmmaker does next. I don't want to fall into that trap of saying, oh, they should give this guy a Marvel movie or they should give this guy a Star Wars movie. I think... <laughs> Please they don't. <laughs> should, they should give this guy the movie that only he can make that he wants to make next. And, you know, that's what I want to see from this guy. Kind of like, you know, Jordan Peele. People said, oh, I want Jordan Peele to make a Marvel movie. I'm like, no, I want to make... I want Jordan Peele to make a Jordan Peele movie. 
you know, is, uh, it, re- it reminds me more of like the, the situation that Robert Eggers was in after The Witch. Yeah. Which I think is a better film, but it's one of those things where I, I need to see what this guy does next. Right. But it has to be his kind of movie. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But uh, I mean, with all the all the attention this is getting, I feel like uh, I mean, it, it's hard to tell. You know, it's uh, this weird period we're in right now where there's no box office and there's no there's all these there's these stats that come out about how much something made on VOD and how much how many uh, things are are uh, you know how many how much viewership things are getting on streaming services. And there's no, there's no central way of measuring any of that. It's like Netflix might say something like, well, this is our, they have their top 10 thing now where they show what their number one movie is at, at any given week, but they don't really, they don't have hard numbers out. So, you know, it might look like something's a big hit, but you don't know for sure. Like I just did a whole story for another site about uh, how figuring out what the ratings are for those Apple TV plus shows. Cause there isn't really, there's no official numbers. Apple doesn't put them out. So you, you have to like go to these research firms that have their estimates, but uh, something like this, I mean, you look at the social media stuff it's getting, you look at the, it's gotten really good reviews. It's gotten a lot of, uh, I feel like over the time of its festival run and in the, in the last couple of weeks, I've seen a lot of people, a lot of critics really championing this movie and I've been one of them. So I, uh, before you cut in, I just want to quickly mention something. So, because we did mention that it is on Amazon, right? So you can watch it on VOD on Amazon. And I actually messaged you guys and I asked you if you had problems with the actual picture quality. Now, just a fair warning, because I actually uh, went on YouTube and I listened to this one review from a film critic and he had a problem with the actual quality of the image. So when I saw it at the, at the film festival, one of the things that stood out about the movie was not only the camera movement, but also the cinematography, like the lighting it's not like at the level of say someone like roger deakins right it's not like a masterpiece in terms of cinematography but it looked way better on the big screen and when i watched it on amazon there was something wrong with the quality of the picture like specifically the color grading the blacks are not good at all they are yeah the, the blacks are terrible in in the whatever version amazon has right and so it's the first time i watched a movie on amazon i just got amazon prime and that was my first time experience. So I don't know if it's a if it if it is a problem with the transfer. I have no idea how Amazon r- works, but just a fair warning: the picture is very dark because the entire film was shot at night. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie that now I, I watched. I watched the screener um, like late at night, and I think I watched it like on an iPad, which is probably the best way to watch this movie. Um, but. I give it another look to prepare for this discussion and I watched it in daylight, which you shouldn't do because this isn't a, this isn't a day movie. Um, but yeah, I, I, I did see that a lot of the, a couple of the long tracking shots and a couple of the places where it's nighttime, you know, you, you couldn't really see much. It was a little too dark. It was kind of like the, the game of Thrones episode where they fight the white walkers and you can't tell what the hell's going on. It was, it was a little bit like that, except uh, not nearly as expensive. There's also it almost looks like a gray film is over the the lens at certain times, which you I could tell this was not the intent. It just it did not look right. There, huh. it, like you said, it looks like there's something wrong with the, in the color transfer. There were certain shots where there was clearly not supposed to be a mist as they're walking through the streets. It, it was a clear night, uh, yeah. you know. You could see the stars up in the sky, and yet there's this film almost over the camera that it just it makes all the blacks the surrounding blacks uh you know kind of grayed out in in some ways but even through that i I could get a sense of what the cinematography was and so there was still an appreciation there and the composition of the shots is really good i do want to get into the the cinematography because i I, why while i enjoyed the cinematography in this movie i do have some 
I'm not sure that it necessarily supported the movie. And there are a couple of things that I do want to get into, even though I really like this movie. It's I'm a big Twilight Zone guy. I know. Why do you think I recommended the movie? Because of you. I don't feel like this was I, I think they well, we'll get to this, I guess, later when we <laughs> do things we would have changed. Right. But I'm not really sure that that they needed any sort of Twilight Zone references in this because this movie, to me, doesn't fit the tone or the the how a Twilight Zone is structured or anything like that. It doesn't really have, to me, much resemblance to a Twilight Zone movie, and I think it could have just stood on its own without those references. Um, I need to respond to that at the end of the show. But re- regardless... Um, and keep in mind, like, I, I've been compiling this. I'm going to be doing this mega article. I actually wanted to do this for the first season of the of Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone to go through episode by episode. As And then I watched every single episode of Rod Serling's first season of the Twilight Zone. And I wanted to compare the two to kind of explain how I, I didn't think that Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone uh, took a, inspiration enough from Rod Serling's either, just in tone and structure. Um but anyway, that, that's an article for a different time. That's going to be a massive article as I go through it episode by episode. Um, can we just talk about the positive? Because I, I, I think you and I are going to be on the same page. Yeah. So here's the thing. The the girl, I'm going to say girl because I'm assuming when she filmed this movie, she was maybe 19. I think the actress is now 23 years old. She's playing a 16-year-old. She explicitly says that in the movie. So. Right. So mm-hmm. Faye Crocker is the character. So Faye, that character. So she needs to work a switchboard. Now, this is an old school, legit, authentic switchboard from like the late 50s, right? So she had to actually learn how to work the switchboard. So there are these long static takes. It's not just a movie that consists of long tracking shots. There are these long static takes in which the camera will hold on her and orders a bunch of cameras, but it's one continuous take, right? So like there, it's not necessarily like it's all done live in camera. And so she needs to perform and she needs to learn how to work the switchboard while performing you know, performing while acting, while delivering her lines and being an actress. And it's moments like that. Like, I just like, Patrick, I think we mentioned this or I mentioned this a while back when we were talking about The Fog. And I told you I had this infatuation with movies, horror movies or thrillers or sci-fi movies that somehow incorporate a radio station. And I've always wanted to make a horror film that in which the central character or the central location is a radio station. And when I walked out of this movie, I was so upset. And my friend Marion was like, what's wrong? And I'm like, that is the movie I wanted to make. I wanted to make this movie like Pontypool, for example, a movie that centers around the radio station. Now, in this case, there's the radio station. And then there's where she works, where she operates a switchboard. And I love how this movie seems in love with the technology because her character is in love with the fact that she has a tape recorder. For her, this is fascinating. Like mid fifties, late fifties, the first time she's ever seen a tape recorder. She, she wants to learn how it works. Like how how do I, you know, she's. It's just like amazing for her, right? Like the fact that it can record her voice in conversations and interviews. And I love how we're introduced to the two characters, the two main characters, and we get to know so much about them. Has the camera just basically follows them in and around the high school and the high school gym? Has they you know, meet like locals, like people on the basketball team and or the school principal or the couple sitting in the parking lot. Like, I love the way the movie introduces us to the world of sound and these two characters. Yeah, you know, uh, so the first time I watched this movie twice this week um, and the first time for like the first 20 minutes, this is an interesting screenplay structure because 
it takes 20 minutes to establish characters before it even establishes the premise of what's going to happen in the movie, what the main thrust is going to be. Uh, it establishes the two main characters and how they play off other people and how they, more importantly, how they play off of each other. Um, and, you know, it sort of goes through their backgrounds of what their personalities are. And she's very into science and he's very into being Matthew McConaughey, he thinks, uh, in a way. Like, he wants to be really cool, but he's also into the technology as well. Um, to a point, anyway. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 the first time it introduces the characters, I noticed something that's very, very odd for a movie. You get so used to relying on things with film language, you just expect certain things to happen. And there aren't any close-ups of the actors' faces until Faye makes it to the switchboard, which is about 20 minutes into the movie. And so for a long time, I kept wondering, when am I going to get to see what these people actually look like? That He doesn't show their faces, and in many right, cases, yeah. he shows them from behind. Or they're really in shadows because it is at night when they're interviewing people in the cars and stuff like that. You'd never get a good sense of what they look like or who they are, like who they physically are, uh, other than the the physical performances and the way that they move. So the actors have to rely a lot on movement to convey character. And I thought that was really interesting. I love long takes, by the way, and the tracking shots in this. That I was going to go back. Like that's what I do love about the cinematography that he that he really holds on everybody but i found it really really odd and kind of almost disconcerting it put me on edge a little bit not seeing faces and i don't know if that's some kind of thing i mean this is a movie that uh we're, we're gonna do spoilers i think in this are we not right we are we are um we sh we should have warned the listeners yes and about by the way patrick uh you are right at the 18 minute mark is when we reach the um i don't even know what you would call it like where she operates the switchboard yeah, it's a telephone switchboard. It's the telephone yeah. for their towns. Um, if you've ever watched Andy, if you ever watched the Andy Griffith show, you know that people call into a central operator and Sarah, <laughs> and uh, they you give the number of the person that they're trying to reach or the name of the person they're trying to reach, and uh, that local switchboard operator then connects them. Right, and and the the sequence I was speaking about when she's operating the switchboard, it is nine minutes and forty seconds long. So it just goes to show that a, that a, a simple scene in which she is just operating the switchboard, taking calls from whoever, whoever, is nine minutes and 40 seconds long, like in terms of like before they actually cut to the next scene or the next character. And it's all almost entirely, it's it's close up, basically. I mean, it's it's not quite, but it's pretty close. That's the first time you actually get to see what she looks like uh, and how her face, you know, behaves. And it's nine minutes. So they go 20 minutes without showing faces, really. And then they go nine minutes of just showing a face. <laughs> and, and I don't know, it, it, it has a very, uh, it, it was like a disconcerting effect to me at first. And then it was sort of a relief. But then that's when the actual premise kicks in. And so that they can start ramping up some tension and mystery again. It, it was an interesting way of doing it. Before we get any feedback, I'm, I'm just referring to my notes here. So the movie actually takes place in 1958. And it wasn't filmed in New Mexico. It was filmed mostly in Texas. In the movie, it takes place in New Mexico, but it was filmed in Texas. There you go. Sorry, guys. I'm not from the States. I always like, have to figure out my geography. That's all right. <laughs> it's close enough. I think Roswell is towards the uh, the eastern side of New Mexico, which borders along Texas. So I have been to Roswell. And so something I only noticed on my third viewing this week, the radio station is the the, the actual letters of the radio station is W-O-T-W, uh, War yep. of the Worlds. I was like, I, I can't yeah. believe I didn't recognize that. I know that was a nice little joke. I caught that only the second time around. I was like, yeah. "This had that has to stand for something." <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, like I say, uh, it's a movie that relies on 
the cinematography is great. And I, I, I it's very, very visually interesting to look at. I think I could debate whether or not the cinematography and the choices he makes actually support the movie um, or support sort of the tones in some ways. Because sometimes I think sort of the free-flowing thing maybe took away from a little bit of the tension later on, uh, even though I love looking at everything. However, the actors, I think, are what really drive this thing home. And I think the performances are the, from the two lead characters are what stand out the most for me even in those shots, like I can't take my eyes off them, even though there's a lot of virtuoso camera work here, which is very cool. The actors never ever lose being the focal point of this. The, the actors and the acting and the dialogue, like the actual screenplay to me is the action and the special effects of what is a sci-fi movie. Like that is what brings the movie to life. I mean, I, I didn't think one of them really uh, outshone the other. I mean, I think it was uh I mean, you can. I think you can tell in a filmmaker's being showy and being too, uh, you know, kind of ha ha, look what I can do. And uh, that wasn't really, uh, that wasn't really what this was. I didn't feel like. Um, I think uh, the uh, it was the Chris Hemsworth action movie on Netflix, uh, Extraction. Yeah. It had a long tracking shot too, which didn't really have any reason to be a long tracking shot. It was just, uh, you know, a long chase scene in a car that you know just happened to be one shot and didn't really. I'm like, okay, you can do that. That's impressive that you can do that, but it doesn't really add up to a, uh, you know, a good filmmaking. I, I and I kind of felt the same way about 1917, which I wasn't that high on because it, you know, I get it. it's it's trying to look like it's all one shot, but it wasn't really all one shot because they didn't really film the movie in one day. It would have been really impressive if they had, and I probably would have, you know, liked it. I mean, it would have been well if they could have everybody walk up to the exact right spot for two hours and not have anyone screw up, and then if they screw up, they'd try it again the next day. I mean, that would have been a hell of a way to make a movie, but that's not actually what it was. So. I, have, I have a huge beef with that movie. I, I've talked about it on the podcast before. The fact that it won Best Cinematography and everything was done post-production makes no sense. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm also not a big fan of that movie. I'm, I, it was definitely, I feel, overpraised uh, in many respects. I also feel like it was, it was just a traditional, like, I don't know, a cookie-cutter war story, too. Um, this movie has a special thank you to Kevin Durant, which I, as a huge fan of the NBA, found hilarious. And do you know? Do you know the story? So, so actually, you know, you tell the story. I guess uh, the director used to work for the Oklahoma City Thunder. He was a video. Was he a pregame promo producer? I want to say he would specifically make promos for Kevin Durant to try to entice Kevin Durant to stay at Oklahoma. Like back then he was playing with Russell Westbrook and James uh, Harden and he wanted to leave the team. So they hired uh, the director and his crew to film these promos for Kevin Durant because they wanted to persuade him to not leave the team. This was the first time he was going to leave or when he actually did leave? This is uh, right before he left. Because I guess this, this this project was more successful than that project was. Although <laughs> Durant's now on his second second team since he left the Thunder. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I can... Uh... But yeah, I guess he, he made enough money from that that he put some of this into the movie. Is that what the story was? Well, at least some good came out of that then. Because, I, I mean, this is the, what's incredible about uh, The Vast of Night is how confident uh, the directing seems. Uh, for somebody who's just making, who was doing video promos apparently before, this is not to say that talent can't come from anywhere, and it has. But yeah. it, it's always impressive when a first-time director seems so assured uh, on the job because there really isn't, 
he's able to balance out you, you like you were talking about how you didn't really think that this was a standoffish like show or show off kind of camera yeah. and i don't think so either I, I don't think so at all when i say there's virtuous camera work i mean in the best possible way i think he really is trying to 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 establish a style and that that on a rhythm because when he does actually get to the cuts it really ramps up the excitement in the movie he saves editing for certain moments and he does a fantastic job with them and he i think he nails that rhythm that is so hard to get in movies uh perfectly i i can't say that there's ever a moment where i feel like the movie's lagging or dull in any way or or i, and I even upon rewatching it i didn't want to get to the next part or feel like oh, i got to go through this scene first before we get back to the good stuff he he establishes that even the nine minute close-up of fade on the switchboard is all done really well. That to me is in service of what is the excitement that's going to come. And it's a nice little lull after we've been talking through town and so much rapid fire conversation for the first 20 minutes. And then it's a nice little like break from that. And then we go into the exciting stuff where he starts to edit a little bit more. Uh, Yeah. yeah, It's, it's amazing to me that somebody was able to figure out how to do that. You don't see a lot of movies that take that approach uh, that use long shots like that to to right. help with the rhythm and this is a great example of it it's one of those movies that i watched and I, it's like i want to go out and make a movie and that's always a good sign when it, when a movie makes you want to do that it's not perfect but it, it does it, it has so many things to like about it last year when i saw the movie i spoke to you on the phone for about three hours talking to you about making a movie for fantasia it was after i watched this movie that makes yeah, sense interesting i i don't really have any aspirations of ever being a filmmaker but uh i can certainly respect that uh that uh being inspired that way because you know so many filmmakers uh, were in fact inspired by that but i can tell you that um both of those long dialogue scenes the one where uh, it's the guy on the phone and then when they go to the woman's house i was just hanging on their every word for both of those and i thought and that's that, that that's a pretty rare skill to have to be able to you know <clears throat> create scenes like that when in the same movie you're also creating these you know elaborate outdoor shots with the tracking shots so i thought that was uh I found that just as impressive as uh, as the the cinematography stuff. It's it's gonna sound weird, but I kind of felt like I knew the characters personally, or at least like you know, like when you know someone, like it's a friend of a friend, so you don't, they're not like your friend. You maybe had one conversation with that person in your lifetime, but you know who they are. When I was watching the movie, every time they meet new people, like there's specifically a couple that they meet halfway through the film, I was like, I kind of feel like I know who these people are. Like it's just this the way they create this small town feel and this vibe and and the tone and the atmosphere and also like the soundtrack, the the music, the composer did a great job, especially the way they introduced the film because the movie revolves around the the, the mystery of a strange frequency, like a, a strange sound that comes out of like the airwaves or like it's being picked up by by yeah airwaves and obviously telephone wires as well uh clearly it's supposed to be coming from alien ships uh we learn there's your spoiler for you um communicating with each other that's the implication anyway and that seems to be what the uh, the truth is when they have a caller when the when the when the caller explains that he would hear it around the alien uh you know, around the, the military jobs that he was doing in New Mexico in the 50s. Right. Okay. Because the reason why I ask is because it's like it takes place in the 50s. So he's playing vinyl. It's not like CDs or like MP3s or we, we don't have the internet. So, so yeah, it makes sense if they hear it through the airwaves listening to the radio station. And I guess when they make a phone call. 
Yeah, for some reason, it, it's getting, uh, well, you do hear it a little bit. There is a caller that calls in. She says that she sees something above her house and that they're going into the cellar. And you do hear the noise over the phone line then. Uh, so, yeah, for whatever reason, it's it's getting into the phone lines and uh, and making its way to the switchboard, which is how she's able to, which is how Faye is able to play it for Everett when he's at the radio station. But it also interrupted Everett's broadcast briefly. So it was making its way through the airwaves as well. Uh, so it's just kind of around being picked up by anything. Any electrical communications devices apparently are, are picking up this signal. Yeah. Yeah, super sure I got to. Yeah, so it's obviously like the, the close encounters bits are obviously there, although this movie tends more towards the creepier side of things. It's, yeah. uh, you know, with the War of the Worlds, it, 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 there's there's talk of invasions and, and Everett thinks it could be the Russians. Um mm. You know, or the Soviets as they were back then. Um, yeah, planning an invasion of some sort. Um, yeah, so there's a little bit of paranoia. The movie doesn't lean into it like a 50s movie really would. I mean, this isn't like, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers or <laughs> something right. like that, where it's really going for that. Um, but it's there. It's kind of hanging around. Uh, this There seems to be a little bit more of a heroic journey going on with these two. They're almost like... You know, it's like the Nancy Drew mysteries. They're they're trying to figure out what's going on with this thing. They're just zooming around town. They're having a blast, stealing cars and bicycles, breaking into the library and yeah. all sorts of stuff. They're kind of having a little adventure. And so the movie doesn't get it doesn't go full on horror. There are creepy moments, though. And uh, mm-hmm. Stephen, you brought up the, the dialogue at the end with the old woman. I think yeah. that's among the more creepier oh, yeah. <laughs> moments for sure. And of course, the very end, I think what's implied is not exactly um i don't know it's not that it's not it's not richard dreyfus walking into the the spaceship let's put it that way yeah no but we do get to see the footprint or footprints and the fact that the footprints stop dead in the tracks and we do get to see the fact that the tape recorder is left behind and throughout the whole entire film she won't let go of the tape recorder like she holds it close to her because she wants to protect it so we know something bad happened to these two characters and i think it's clear what happened to them yeah, it's obviously implied that they were taken, uh, and the and the woman, the old woman's story, uh, um, kind of is what confirms that. And I like that kind of storytelling where they don't have to show it. Like they, we were we were told a story, and we can figure out, we can put the pieces together after that. Uh, just like with the caller, the the military guy that calls in, um, you can start piecing. Yeah, you can start piecing together things based on what Billy is describing, and it you know calls up Roswell. Obviously, calls up that that famous crash. I think that was in late 1940s if i'm not mistaken 47 i think is where i was supposed to be yeah there you go and so it obviously implies that he was there for part of that though it never mentions roswell and it, it smartly i think it doesn't tie in too much to you know something that's already been mythologized uh <laughs> in many other things and is in popular culture so it stays away from pop culture kind of stuff uh but it certainly at least calls that to mind and and a lot of the storytelling is through that. You have to infer things as the audience. You have to yeah. actually put it together. And I enjoy that in a sci-fi film, especially. And combining that with a little bit of creepiness is always good. Yeah, for sure. Man, I'm so glad it's not one of those movies that just feels the need to mention every single pop culture reference from from a specific year in a matter of like 30 minutes. It depends on the movie. 
you brought up American Graffiti, like how the cars reminded you of that. American okay. Graffiti makes pop culture references to the Beach Boys and Buddy Holly, but it does so with a specific purpose, and that one character is feeling old because Buddy yeah. Holly's died and rock and roll's been going downhill, and the other character is young, and she enjoys the new music, and it's, it's a contrast. You can do pop culture references. They just have to have some meaning behind them. Well, Mer- uh, American Pie is kind of funny, you know, about, about Buddy Holly, because uh, it's a song Don McLean wrote in the early 70s about how there was never any good music again after Buddy Holly died in 1959, which is a very counterintuitive opinion to have about music. Right. And uh, he still to this day, once in a while, complains about how there's never any good music anymore. But I mean, he's he hasn't really changed his mind in about more than 40 years. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, American Graffiti is one of my favorite movies, and that's a movie I try to watch, you know, at least once every summer. And uh, it has maybe possibly the best collection of pop songs in any one movie you know, at all. And, uh, if, uh, you want to look at George Lucas, I mean, it's kind of interesting that, you know, we never, we never really got that George Lucas again, you know, he made that and then he went right to star Wars. It was his next movie. And then, you know, it was just nothing for a long time. Star Wars. Yeah. Well, <laughs> He was an interesting filmmaker. I mean, THX 1138 is by no means a perfect movie either, but there is something magnetic magnetic about it. And I think that Vassanite is a much better debut than THX 1138, but it does show that what a young filmmaker could have done, like between THX 1138 and American Graffiti and then Star Wars, Lucas was on a trajectory to be a very, very interesting filmmaker, but he just got caught up in running his business instead. Um I, uh, with with movies like this, this to me is a, a THX movie in many respects. It is vague. It is challenging. Uh, it's it's not spoon feeding the audience at all. Um, it's it's a little bit. It's more audience friendly than THX is. That's for sure. But uh, but it has sci-fi elements that that require engagement from the the viewer, and I like that, and that's good. And you know, you want to see that in your especially in your small budget movies, because it's very easy just to copy somebody and, and go forward and, you know, create something that's already been done and just try to put your own little spin on it. But I feel like this was a fairly original creation. I am having a hard time comparing it to a specific movie. I can compare it to movies that it reminds me of in certain ways, but I couldn't actually compare it to a lot of sci-fi movies that I've seen. Like, you know, you've got the radio station, the fog, the radio station is a big, central piece of that movie but this is nothing like the fog even though there's something coming to a small town in that movie as well um these those movies are nothing alike the closest comparison point would be pontypool but pontypool is like specifically like a horror film like it's a zombie film but it's the fact that it all takes place in a radio station and there's a small cast and has that small uh town feel to it so yeah think pontypool but an episode of the twilight zone if Faye is 16, how old is the guy supposed to be? Oh, man, I'm guessing he's 19, maybe. So 18, right maybe. School, I guess, and he's, yeah, he he seems to know. School. He seems to still be friends with a lot of people in the school. So my, okay. I guess he's 18 or 19. Like, he just graduated. And, uh, you know, he's got the big job but he wants to, at the radio station, but he wants to get out of there. Yeah. I guess I read, I think it was an interview with the director. He said something about how the, the basketball court, they they needed it to look like a fifties basketball court. So no three point lines, no, uh, you know, it had to be the way they're playing the game has to be the way it was played back then as opposed to how it's played now. You know, it's funny. I noticed that, that there was no three point line and it looked weird. Yeah. (laughs) And of course they're dressed perfectly too. Yeah. (laughs) Hey man, I love the way they're dressed. Like 
those are like really good basketball outfits. I love those shorts. But but I didn't notice the uh, the I didn't notice that I was missing a three point line. Yeah, yeah it wasn't yeah. invented yet, or at least not in, not at the high school level. Yep, wasn't part of wasn't part of the game back then. I wanted to ask you guys this though, because this was something I couldn't wrap my head around. What do you think the importance of the game is? Uh, after two viewings, I'm not exactly sure. Other than I know the 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 story significance that it gets everybody in the small town together. But do you think he does come back to basketball a couple of times? Do you think there is some significance here? Well, I think it's it's it, it, it's probably just. Uh... You know, 1950s Americana. I think that's it. I, I think it's just because he was looking for an excuse and a reason to have everyone in a small town at a specific event. Because in the in the in the movie, they say that the quote unquote sound or aliens or whatever it is only appears when there's very few people around. Right. It's just odd to me because you could have easily said, hey, everybody's it could have been a line of expositional dialogue. Oh, everybody's at the big game. But he does really spend some time in that gym. Now, granted, once you get outside of it, you don't see a ton of it afterwards. But in that tracking shot you mentioned, he does go back into the basketball game and he shows the game taking place and the people cheering and everything that's going on. Uh, He spends more time there than I would have thought if it was just a device, I guess. When the movie was over, the first time I watched it, I was so upset because not only is it a type of movie I want to make, but I always said that when I make a movie, I always want to have something related to basketball in the movie. And most likely I would put a bunch of kids or teens playing basketball in the movie. Maybe it's just his love for basketball. I don't know. I I would be really interested to know if there's some hidden meaning behind it, but I seriously doubt it. Hey, just, I think the guy just likes basketball. He came from kind of a basketball background and uh, that's just... uh... Maybe it's supposed to recall Hoosiers, just like a, a kind of, uh, you know, small town 1950s type of situation. And I guess it could have been a football game, but that would have been harder to shoot. I'm, I imagine it would have been harder to, you know, have a tracking shot go into and out of it as opposed to just walking into the side of the school that goes right into the gym. So, yeah, and I'd be curious to know, like, uh, you know, how popular was basketball in the Southwest at that time? I know it was obviously popular um, in the Midwest and the East, but um, it, it's curious because obviously football, do you think Texas, you think football more than you think yeah. basketball? Um, and, you know, New Mexico, I don't know if thought the same. Now it's very possible that basketball was a big sport in, you know, down there. But uh, I'd be curious to find out if that was the case or if he just would, if it was easier to have it or more visually interesting too to film inside a gymnasium as opposed to outdoor in a football field which can be kind of bland. Football movies tend to... Uh, the field isn't a great, great place to film anything. Well, you got to uh, spend more on props and costumes if it's football. You got to you gotta hire more extras. You got to... Sorry, New Mexico has, like, a pretty successful NCAA basketball team in terms of, like, the history of the team. The uh, Lobos, right? So, like, I, I'm not... Like, again, I'm not entirely sure what his... I, I'm assuming he's just a fan of, of basketball, but they made the Sweet 16, like, once or twice, if I'm not mistaken. Well, it was New Mexico's New Mexico State. I think they're both in the Pac-10, so I guess they're uh, they hit the big time occasionally. I don't, I don't, I don't follow college basketball close enough to know like who played who played there and how good they've been. But um, I know uh, you know Arizona is also in that part of the country, and they're they have quite they have quite a basketball history. And um, and of course, you know Steve Nash played for the Suns. I think that was when they the Suns became and Berkeley had his run with them as well. And I think uh, yeah, they've they've had occasional runs when they've been uh, you know kind of at the forefront of basketball in a way they haven't been recently but okay stupid question roswell is in new mexico right yeah that's correct okay 
for some reason, I always get confused, and I th- I start doubting myself and thinking it's in Texas. No, 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 but it's close. It's about, I would say, oh, I don't know, 90 miles from the border of Texas. It's a ways. Uh, I was out visiting a small town called Portales, and it was, it was and Portales is fairly close to the border of Texas. Uh, there's nothing out there, by the way. Um, and Roswell, I saw the sign for it. I was visiting friends, and I saw a sign for it, and I just thought, you know what, why not? I'm going. I'm here right now just for the same reason I also went and visited the gra- grave of Jesse James. Um, why not? When am I ever going to get back? Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. so I went to Roswell. It's a big tourist place. Like they've just got, you know, alien stuff everywhere. It's kind of yeah. hilarious. Um, mm. there's not really a lot to it. it. It is a very small, dusty town that's in a flat land with no trees and all that kind of stuff. It's just a, it's a desert town, yeah. but, uh, yeah, there's not a whole lot to it. I did not go to area 51. No, <laughs> I didn't storm the gates. Wait, are area 51 in Roswell? Two different Area places, or are they? Area those? 51 is Nevada, I should say. Yeah, so I, oh, yeah, I, Nevada, I've, yeah. I've never been there, but <laughs> right, I remember Area that 51. from. Uh, I remember that from uh, Independence Day. But, um, oh yes, exactly. Or I've never uh, been or, to New Mexico. I've been to Arizona. I've been to Las Vegas, but I've never been to um, New Mexico. Okay, yeah, the eastern half is is it's it looks exactly like it did the movie. Uh, it's yeah. pretty flat, and there's just not really a whole lot of uh, not a lot of trees. There's just a lot of horizon, is what there yeah. is. Yeah. All right. Well, that should wrap up our general discussion. Uh, but we're going to hear another clip uh, here from the Vast of Night. And when we come back, we will do our five questions. Here's another clip. Number, please. Sorry for the wait. Number, please. Okay, I'll connect you. Not sure. No, you're the first one to. Yes, we'll let them know. Thank you. Number, please. Yes, we're notifying Highway Patrol. Uh, we'll relay any news to you. Thank you. Thank you. Number, please. Sorry for the wait. All right. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. People are saying there's something in the sky. Can't you just record it? Yeah, folks, it is 7.45 p.m. and we may have something that'll need some explaining here in Santa Fe. Oh, what? There is something in the sky. We followed it from Colt Canyon. I'm I'm going to my Gerald now. Please call me Gerald. I'm I'm Everett. This is Faith. We just had the power cut off at the radio station. Where is everybody? Yeah, yeah, I do have a hit from 7 to 11. We drove 80 miles an hour all the way from down here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the old stuff. I didn't do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, All right, that was another clip from The Vast of Night, directed by Andrew Patterson. And we are now back to the segment of our podcast where we ask five questions. We try to really tear into specific parts of the movie uh, as best that we can. And we always like to start off with something positive. Um, so, Stephen, yes. what was your favorite scene from this film? Favorite scene? Um, I'm going to say it was when they're on the phone with the soldier. Which yeah, I guess the, you could te- I guess you could technically say it's two scenes because it's he hangs up and then they call him back. Although I don't know if the shot breaks at all, so I guess technically it's one scene. But yeah, that's my favorite because it just kind of you just hear the guy's voice. You don't quite know what direction it's going. You kind of you have a hint that it's going to have something to do with you know an alien encounter, but uh, you don't know exactly what he's going to say. You don't know exactly where it's going. So that I thought was um, um, 
my favorite part. I thought the um and the same the woman the same they're talking to the woman was was um right behind it I think and I'd say the tracking shot is third. Okay, yeah that that uh, the scene with Billy was very good one. There's a couple of like parts with him because then they take off he tells them about the tape that's in that his friend had and that tape is now in the library and they have to she starts running to the library or no she steals yeah. the bike and goes there and gets in then he picks her up with a stolen car borrowed car sorry um yeah that's uh and then they come back and they talk to him again once they find the sound and that was it and yeah that all that though his initial story is really really good uh really really starts it really kicks the movie into a creepier tone than it originally had Right. Uh, with for me, I'm gonna go with I don't know why, but on the second viewing, I just was eating this up, and it's not because there's nothing flashy about it. Uh, there's not really anything visually dynamic about it, uh, and yet for some reason, I love when Faye gets to the switchboard uh, room for the first time, and then yeah. the the entire scene of her trying to figure out what is going on, like aunt taking calls from people and just the little breadcrumbs that are dropped uh, with the first caller that, you know, that, that complains that there's something or not complains, but is saying there's something overhead, but she can't really hear. Her, and she's going down to the cellar and then she cuts off, but the, the noise is there. And then she's, she questions some of the, or she calls up some other switchboard operators to ask if they've ever heard a sound like the one that's on the switchboard right now. And just watching her kind of operate that machine uh, there's something really tactile about it, and it's just really pleasing. And it gets, it kind of very, very gradually communicates the sci-fi vibe that this thing's now going to go into. And mm -hmm. I sort of, I just really enjoyed that. Plus the slow, I love, I'm a huge fan of extremely slow push-ins or zooms, and I believe this was a, more of a push-in. But yeah. I love that when it goes really, really slow, and everything just become narrows slowly, slowly, slowly narrows on somebody's face or an item. Anyway, I, I love that kind of visual stuff. So, Rick, what about you? What's your favorite scene? So, I already mentioned it, and you just mentioned it. It's the switchboard scene in which she gets to the switchboard for the very first time. But if I had to take a second pick, backup choice, I'm actually going to choose the... Um, the scene in which they get into the car and they meet the second couple because that's when things get chaotic and there's lights in the sky and at one point the driver the driver of the car goes into sort of like a trance because he sees the lights and the it's because they wrote the read the words right exactly yeah exactly. you're talking about the end yeah towards the end I don't know like again it's not the best scene you guys already mentioned the best scene but there's something about that scene where it shows the promise of this director to be able to do a picture with a bigger budget on a bigger scale with a bigger cast and a bigger crew and, you know, a bigger story. Yeah, that was, uh, I mean, as soon as they started going through the tape recorder, the only thing I could think of was the words. Like when they, when they brought up, oh, she also read off this incantation. It was like a, tr uh, a flash or a light bulb went off in my head. I was like, something is going to happen. Something's going to happen because she had warned that people acted differently around those. And she was reading those words when they walked. The old woman was reading those words when they walked into her house. And uh, obviously she was testing to see if there was something wrong with them or if their minds had been played with. And uh, sure enough, the the couple that they meet, their minds had been played with. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good scene that's very creepy like this guy could do a more straight horror or a, a, a straighter horror movie than this really was it seems like that showed for sure mm -hmm. uh, all right so steven if there's one thing you could change about this movie what would it be 
I don't know. Could have been 10 minutes longer, I guess. I think it goes in about 90 minutes, maybe a little bit shorter than that. And uh, I don't know. I, I could have spent a little bit more time in this world, so it wouldn't have, wouldn't have felt like too long. Yeah, is there any particular spot that you think could have been expanded upon? Um, not really in particular, no. Okay. Maybe, um, maybe, maybe the beginning part, maybe a little, a little bit more time in the town, you know, spending, spending time with some of those characters that might've been a spot to put more in. I would say maybe with that couple, even though they're, they're, yeah, they yeah. familiarize themselves with that couple, it would have been nice to get a little more context as to what their relationship was. He obviously right. seemed to know them pretty well. Um, but yeah, that could have been a little more. They they could have maybe done a little bit more than that. Maybe. Rick, would you rather go first or second on this one since I stole your last pick? <laughs> I'm going to go first because I know what you're going to choose, right? And so I had the same complaint yeah. as you do, but here's my second pick. So my first pick would be what you're going to choose, I think. My second pick is throughout the film, he decides to cut to black, right? So... I understand the choice for the film director to decide to cut the black when we hear the voice of Billy, the man who was in the military. Because I guess thematically you can look at it like he was in the dark when he was in the military. He didn't know what was going on. He was part of some weird government experiment, et cetera, et cetera. And so here, you know, that's why the screen cuts to the dark while he's telling the story. Or maybe it's because we just don't see him and we're hearing him through the airwaves. Like, Whatever the reason is, like I didn't mind so much that it cut to black, except it continued to cut to black. Like it wasn't just once or twice, and it cut to black a few times and for a good, you know, I would say like a minute or so. And again, I watched it at the film festival, and I do not remember it cutting to black. And so I watch it on Amazon, and it cuts to black. And I was like, is there something wrong with my Amazon account? So if I was thinking that there was something wrong with my TV set or my Amazon account. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to watch this movie and they're going to be like, what is wrong with the movie? It, there's, the screen just went to black. So it's it's one of those it's one of those decisions that a filmmaker makes for whatever reason, be it stylistically or thematically, whatever. But it actually takes the viewer out of the movie and out of the story. Yeah, they don't feel in place and it made me wonder when you talked about how the movie looked different in the theaters and steven you say it looked different on your screener yeah. it makes me wonder were there other transfer mistakes like was there so steven when you watch the screener were the, were those uh cuts to black all present in there i mean not not to the point where i noticed anything might be wrong i mean oh, i could always i could always tell that it was i mean i could always tell what was going on i didn't it wasn't something that made me say, oh, that's not good. And, and I'm somebody where if I can't tell what's going on, I notice and I mention in my review every time. Like if there's some of these action movies where there, there's just no spatial continuity whatsoever. You have no idea how far apart the characters are standing from each other because there's so many cuts or, you know, it's just a bad or, or it's just a or, or it's just a bad sense of, you know, how the directions work. I mean, that's one of the things that bothers me most in movies that I don't like and I never really had that complaint about this one. Now, I, I, I mean, I, I, it was a dark movie. Like I, could tell, like, I could tell it was supposed to be a dark movie, but I don't remember thinking <clears throat> when I watched the screener that it was uh, that it was not how it was supposed to be. No, but I'm talking about, like, for, for anyone listening to the podcast, it goes to black. Like, there's no reason for it. It's not like the camera pans. You know sometimes you watch a movie and the camera pans, and they specifically pan past, like, a dark hallway so they can do that camera trick where... You know, not now they're in the next room and it looks like it's a continuous shot, but not really because they panned on someone's black T-shirt or like a black background type thing. 
it's not that kind of like camera trick or or there's no reason for it. They just cut to black, and I I can't th- I can't help but think that something went wrong. Like it wasn't actually intentionally supposed to be in black. Like they're not supposed to actually cut the black, but maybe something went wrong, and so the director when he got into like post production and they've already shot the movie and they can't go back. Maybe he decided to like just you know have the screen go to black for whatever reason. I could be totally wrong. It could be intentional. Maybe it's in the screenplay. It was just odd. And like I said, the, the bottom line is it took me out of the movie. It, it does feel weird to me. It just seemed a little bit out of place, especially, like you said, how long they hold it. And it didn't seem to be it did. It just it didn't seem to to support anything like you say, maybe once during the story, if they wanted to sort of make you focus on his words. But there were a couple of times where it didn't seem like they wanted you to focus on anything. And it wasn't it didn't have anything to do with like, I don't and I don't mean like the lights going out. This is just a straight cut to black, which is weird. And sometimes people are talking and they're talking around each other. And, and you're like, what's going on here? Um yeah, it was strange. It's uh, in the middle of a conversation. I've never seen it, ever. I've never watched a movie or TV show where two people are having a conversation and the filmmaker decides to cut to black during the conversation while the conversation continues. Yeah, it was an interesting choice if that was a choice. Uh, I don't know that I trust the Amazon thing completely at this point just because of how much different it seems to be anyway. But uh, who knows, if that was the, the choice, then that was an interesting one. Uh, obviously, okay, I alluded to this earlier on. I would get rid of the Twilight Zone references. There, there's a there's like a futuristic 50s TV in the very beginning, and it's showing black and white footage, and uh, it's a, they have their own little intro that is that is definitely directly referencing the Twilight Zone uh, with their own little Rod Serling type narrator, and it wants to set itself up as kind of an episode of Twilight Zone. I think it doesn't do this very well <laughs> stylistically or any other way. And I don't think it needed that either. I think this movie could have worked just fine on its own. And we would have got the Twilight Zone vibes. It didn't need to be pushed on us. Especially because, as again, as somebody who has devoured the Twilight Zone and has seen these things way too many times more than I should. Um, it doesn't actually remind me at all of the twilight zone so so they, they probably i get that he was inspired by that and that's great because had the, that intro not been on there i can see people still saying that hey there's a little bit of twilight zone in this uh i still don't think there's much but i definitely when you know even in his opening black and white shots my initial thought my brain was like that's not what the twilight zone looks like twilight zone never looked like that uh, so he's, it just didn't, my brain was resisting immediately, like uh, that it wasn't, it was, it was trying so hard to be a reference to the Twilight Zone. And yet it didn't seem to take any, it didn't actually, it could have just, he could have just shot it like, shot the, the little black and white scenes like the Twilight Zone, but he didn't do that. And I, I'm not really sure why. Uh, I'm not, it just, for me, it just didn't need to be there. It's not a big knit or, you know, a big problem or anything. It's just a small little thing that if I was going to trim this movie, I'd cut that out and I'd go, I'd launch straight into the movie. I actually think it's a huge problem. So here's the thing for me, it didn't really bug me so much at the start. Right. But again, throughout the film, they decide to go back to the point of view of the TV screen. Right. So like you see the camera shot filming the old school television set and you're watching the movie through the TV set. And a lot of people at the film festival hated this movie because of the opening and the fact that the director decided to go back 
and f- and show the vantage point of someone watching the movie from a TV set. And they're, they're like, what is the point? Once again, just like when it cuts to black, it takes the viewer out of the movie, out of the story. And you never want to remove the viewer or distract the viewer from your characters and your story. It's a bad, bad decision. So the director said that the reason why he decided to do this, and this is not a good reason, by the way, in my book, he decided to add that sort of like opening and the 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 camera shot showing a, a TV set showing the movie because he felt that people would automatically reference the Twilight Zone and the Outer Limits. And so he wanted to make people aware that he was aware that he's telling a story that's been told a million times before in the past. But that's okay. Like you can tell a story that many people have told before, just do it well. You don't need to call out the fact that you were doing it. To me, that shows insecurity. It shows that you don't have confidence in your movie or your screenplay. It also promises something to the viewer that I think that, like I say, if you, if you are into the rhythms and the structure and the tone of the twilight zone, that it didn't deliver. And that doesn't, that's okay. Cause it delivered its own thing. It works as, like I said, it works as its own movie. It didn't need to promise the twilight zone movie because it wasn't one um it's its own movie and it could have just held up that way um yeah but anyway that's that's how uh, for me it wasn't a huge deal they do cut back to it a couple of times uh it didn't bother me uh, other than for me maybe to give a little smirk like this is you know maybe shaking my head like "Mm, this doesn't (laughs) this isn't the twilight zone at all but um the rest of the movie is so engrossing that it didn't really i i'd cut it i'd still cut it out though uh, then they could expand some of the parts that Steven wanted to expand on. <laughs> yeah. Get get rid of like three minutes, and you got an, you got an extra three minutes to, to go into more stuff. I think I thought that the Twilight Zone thing was padding the time, to tell you the truth, <laughs> a little bit. Like they really they didn't need that. I thought maybe they just tacked that on in order to stretch it out in a, another, like I say, five minutes, three to five minutes, or something like that. For whatever reason, I don't know why, but um, yeah. All right, so back on to more positive stuff, though. Steven, who's your MVP of this film? Uh, I'm going to go with um, Faye, or the actors. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we should say that uh, Faye is played by Sierra McCormick, and Sierra Everett McCormick, is played yeah. by uh, Jake Horowitz. And I yeah, don't that think was... I've ever seen Jake Horowitz or anything. Have you? I, I'm not sure. No, no, I haven't. I, I actually, I hadn't seen either of those two. And uh, yeah, that was going to be my pick as well. Uh, the actors for me, I think, despite all the very confident <laughs> directing and the and the great cinematography, I think I could I could nitpick at least those a little bit to a certain extent. I think that the actors are the rug that tie the room together though. Yeah. They are, <laughs> uh, they really nailed it. And even on my second viewing, I was even more impressed by how much they nail it and how natural they seem. They're the ones Rick that make this small town feel real. It's how they interact with everybody that makes things feel real. Uh, they feel like real people. That's why you think you could, you almost think that you know them it's like they could have been your friends. They act like real people, and man, do these guys, these, those two, nail it. And they, they, they have so much chemistry too. And thankfully, they didn't get into any romance. That was that was good. There are a couple little asides, which are funny. Um, you know, especially when he walks in on her friend in her nightgown. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there are uh, they those two. Their chemistry is is perfect. Like that. Those would be my MVP picks as well. well I really I wonder respect... about their ages. The fact that she's sixteen and however old he is, I, I wasn't. I mean, they they both yeah. have jobs at the at the radio station, so I guess they uh, 
So I, was, I wasn't exactly sure, you know, the exact. I said at the start of the show, they are the special effects. They are the action. They are the two people that bring the movie to life. They are the MVPs. And the director actually said in an interview that he had auditioned over 600 actors and he was about to give up. And then somehow someone recommended him to audition Sierra McCormick. And finally, he right away knew she was right for the role. But imagine going through over 600 auditions and finding the right person for, for, for the role of Faye Crocker, the character she plays. But I think you have to combine the two. And the thing about the uh, the two main actors is this is a movie that's very talky. And I hate using the word talky, but, you know, it's very talky. Right? It's, it's dialogue driven. And I was shocked to learn like i was surprised to learn that it's almost 99 percent accurate to what's on the page of the screenplay because i like when i saw the movie I, it was like when i saw it at the film festival and they asked a the question i assumed that they had free reign to sort of like improvise and uh, you know adjust the dialogue and you know whatever whatever right and apparently no they stuck to the script and so they actually had to memorize the script and do these long takes, like nine minute long shots or eight minute long shots or 10 minute long shots, like these sequences in which they wouldn't cut. And they also had only 17 days to shoot this movie. When you, when you consider the amount of dialogue and the fact that everything's done in camera and a low budget film, and again, shot in 17 days, like, and then the chemistry between the two, you've said, Patrick, there's no romance between them. But she clearly looks up to the ca- the character of Everett. Like, Faye looks up to Everett. Like, he's sort of like, like a role model. And I don't know. I just love the chemistry between these two characters. It's, it's anyways, it's just great. Yeah, and he obviously cares about her. And, uh, but it, it doesn't, it, it sort of implies there could be vague, whatever, and a, a somewhat of an attraction, but it's an attraction of minds, really. Uh, that that's what's the, the best, most interesting part about their relationship. Um, and that's what makes it work. Yeah, without them, the movie, you needed to find, I could see why you had auditioned 600 people, because if you didn't nail the actors, boy, uh, you're going to have a hard time being noticed in this movie. It's just not going to work. I think the thing about the relationship that I really like is what connects them is their fascination and love of audio and technology. And so I kind of feel like he's the character in the town, like the dude in the town who doesn't play sports, who doesn't play basketball, who's not in the basketball team and has no interest in being at the game. And he just wants to be at the radio station and spin his vinyl records and record these crazy interviews and and, and maybe move to a big city and become a journalist, right? Whereas everyone else has no interest in that world. She does. And so he, you know what I mean? It's like one of those things when someone takes notice of you and what interests you, you then take notice of them, right? Because you share this passion. And that's what I love about these two characters. It's like when you're younger and you love movies, you know, specifically genre film, and most of your friends or people in your high school only like the Hollywood blockbusters that you don't really care about. And you meet someone like, you know, and he ends up becoming or she ends up becoming your best friend because you find something in common. It could be that you both love horror films or you both love baseball, but you live in a town where no one loves baseball. That, That to me is what it reminds me of. Yeah, yeah, and it really works. No question. I, they they are the ones. Well, I mean, there's a lot of good things about this, but they are the ones. All right. Uh, all right, so we always ask this question, whether or not a movie passes the Howard Hawks test, which uh, is a that a great movie should be composed of at least three good, great scenes, at least three great scenes, and no bad ones. So, Stephen, does The Vast of Night pass the Howard Hawks test? 
It does, yeah. I can't really think of any uh, bad scenes unless you're counting the ones where you can't see what's going on. But uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it does. Well, I'm actually gonna count those scenes because I don't think it's a good scene when you cut the black during the middle of a conversation. I really just don't understand the choice. But I'm gonna say no, Patrick. You're gonna say no? Yeah, I I didn't find the cut to black. I found it to be odd. It was one of those things that I found weird, but it didn't ruin anything for me. Um, so I wouldn't call it bad, though I do completely understand your reasoning behind this, and I, I absolutely support your reasoning behind this, but I just got to go with my gut on this one, and it didn't bother me in this particular case, uh, even though you are right that you don't want to take your audience out of out of the movie. Um, I'm going to say yes. I, I think this is a a flawed but great indie genre film. Wait, wait, you think this movie has three great, great scenes and no bad scenes. I can forgive you for saying no bad scenes, but three great scenes? I think there's two. I think the opening is definitely a great scene. I think that uh, the the one where she's at the switchboard, I think that is a great scene if you really break it down, just from a a writing perspective of how they start to, like I say, leave the breadcrumbs and start start the mystery. Uh, I think that's a really, really subtly great. It's not like it doesn't slap you in the face and, and, you know, with how great it is. But as a writer, that's one of those scenes that I'm jealous of, right? Mm. Um, okay, and then I think that the scene at the radio station when they're, uh, well, <laughs> actually, it cuts I don't to know. black. <laughs> uh, no, no, not that one. It's like when they've talked to him, when they, then they have to go, le- well, first of all, the, the lights do go out of the radio station, but that's not when it cuts to black. And I do like that scene where then they have to get out of there and they got to go find that tape and they got to go steal the, you know, go to the library. She's running and, and stealing a bicycle and, you know, all these things come to mind, her responsibilities. And she runs back to the, the switchboard and he's following her, like saying, why are you running? We got a car. And she's like, I don't know. I just walk everywhere in town. I'm not used to driving, riding in a car. Uh, I like that whole, I guess that's more of a sequence. This whole entire film seems like one giant sequence, but okay. Fair. I'm glad you actually say yes. And Steven says yes, because I'm going to be the bad guy this week. I love this movie. I pitched the movie. I want to discuss the movie. I want people to watch this movie and know about it. Know about this filmmaker. Don't get me wrong. I love this movie. I just can't say yes, and I think it's just because the cutting to black drives me nuts. But anyways, we will agree to disagree. Uh, you know, I think that's a fair point. Uh, like I say, I was just going with my gut, and it didn't bother me. But I completely, uh, I'm 100% behind your point on that one. Like, I can't debate the logic of it at all. Uh, all right, so we're going to mix things up a little bit. Rick and I had talked about this. Like we always, we usually ask our fifth question is, does this movie stand the test of time? Well, it's a little bit ridiculous when the Howard's Hawks mm. question kind of covers that. Um, so instead we're going to, because we deal with a lot of genre movies here, we're going to, our fifth question is going to be about the appeal. And it basically, so we're going to be asking, does this movie have broad appeal as a genre film? Steven, what do you think? I think it does, and I mean, I'm not the world's biggest horror guy, I'm not the world's biggest Twilight Zone guy, and I thought it was great. I mean, so I think um, I think people are going to like it if they just like a good movie. I don't know if it necessarily has to appeal to, uh, you know, a niche uh, genre audience. Um, I'm going to say I don't think there's going to be a lot of broad appeal for this, because I don't think a lot of people are going to get past those first 20 minutes. First of all, you can't understand the dialogue a lot because their Texas, well, New Mexico accents are so thick. 
uh, and they talk so fast. And so I was like, what are they saying? I have no idea, but I was enjoying watching the camera shot. Um, but I don't know that your general audience is going to go in for that. And they don't know what's happening. Movies people expect within the first eight minutes, because that's the way that Hollywood writes screenplays, to be set up with the characters and the premise. And this movie's going to take 20 minutes to set up characters who you can't see the faces of all that well. And you can't hear everything they're saying. And you don't really know what's going on. Uh, so I, I don't think a lot of people are going to... I think a, a significant portion of people are going to turn it off in that first 20 minutes. And then after that, it's it's all still kind of vague anyway. So I, I do feel like this is going to be more towards your genre crowd, uh, your, your sci-fi crowd, and, and your your movie lovers, your actual film lovers. What do you think, Rick? Yeah, most people are going to tune out. Like They're going to tune out because it's a dialogue-driven sci-fi film with very little special effects, if no special effects. It's, it's For all the reasons you said, I think the majority of people i think i think a lot of people are just going to tune out it's just it's not going to hold their attention and it's it's a shame but it's not the fault of the movie it's because it's just a specific movie it's like a specific niche it's for people that like really talky hardcore sci-fi i say hardcore but it's like a traditional sci-fi film you know in the style of like something that was made in like maybe i would say like the 60s because they don't have like a big budget or, or advanced technology for special effects. So it's really about these characters. And I don't know. I just, I just don't, I don't, I don't see it. It's ambiguous in a lot of ways, but I think, okay. So I think the, the opening 20 minutes is great, but it's just not traditional. And I think it had, they jumped immediately into the mystery, the mystery part of this movie. Like once it actually, once the signal comes through and you start wondering what is this thing and they start getting creeped out by it and you start to learn the alien story. Like I think a general audience would love the Billy story, right? Like I think that would draw them in and they'd be sucked into this thing. The problem is it takes a long time to get there. Now for me, that's not a problem with the movie because I think, I think the movie's totally justified in doing what it does for its first 20 minutes. I think that actually pays off uh, in establishing those two characters because they really are the center centerpiece of this movie, not the alien mystery. But I think that if this was a TV show, it would work. Like I think people would be more forgiving if it was an episode of the twilight zone or the outer limits and, or if it was episode two of, I don't know, some X-Files spinoff, but for some reason has a movie, I think people are going to reject it. And I hate to go back to this, but I think people are going to reject it for something like a simple decision to cut the black during a conversation. Um, just to quickly note, it has a 91% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which to me doesn't mean much because I don't really care about Rotten Tomatoes, but for anyone who does care. But on Internet Movie Database, it has a 6.8 rating so far. It has it does not yet have an audience score on Rotten because I guess, it, I guess it's too new, right? It just got released. I mean, I guess with the critical reviews, I'm sure a lot of them are festivals and stuff. So. Yeah, and I think it was sporting like I can't remember if it was a three and a half. I mean, it already has a rating on on Prime. Uh, I think it was a three and a half, maybe four. Maybe it had a four. I don't think so though. I feel like it had three and a half, which isn't great on Prime, but it also is one of those things where you know not enough people that that isn't a big enough sample size at this point. But it, it's one of those. I mean, I can't see anybody hating this movie. I can see them possibly being bored by the first twenty minutes if they don't get sucked in by the two characters. I think they're great characters, but you know, not everybody's going to. That's completely subjective. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I would recommend anybody out there obviously watch it, though. Give this one a shot. I think it yeah. could be for anybody. I'm just not sure that it will be. In fact, I, I doubt it will be. But uh, but it's one of those movies that I will recommend to everybody. It's not something I would have any reservations about, not like a, say, THX 138, which I, <laughs> I mean, that's such a cold, metallic movie that, you know, you just know that certain people are going to be turned off by it. Uh, I'm kind of turned off by it, even though I find it fascinating at the same time. Uh, so, yeah, those are that's one that I would limit my recommendations, not this one. I think you could recommend this to anybody. And this is kind of this will be a good barometer for what they kind of like in, in their genre sci-fi. Yeah. All right. With that, uh, we should probably wrap things up. Um, Stephen, where can we find you online? Uh, Twitter uh, at Stephen Silver. That's with a P-H. So S-D-P-H-E-N-S-I-L-V-E-R. Um, I am on Rotten Tomatoes. Just look up my name, Stephen Silver. Um, I write for all kinds of places. I write for Cycle the National Interest. I write for uh, sites in Philadelphia, one called Broad Street Review, and of course, Goomba Stomp and Sorted Cinema. Yeah, you're all over the place. And of course, yeah. that was right after Rick said that he didn't care about Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, uh, I'm not being uh, an institutionalist for the Rotten Tomatoes. I'm just saying you can click away from it to, to my uh, to my work. They're, yeah, they're a great place. I, as far as yeah. the scores go, I never pay attention, but they're a great place to find all the reviews. That's what I go there for. There, there's um, a lot. I mean, and, and, I, and I work with people around Tomatoes, and they're good people, but like um, a lot, there's a lot of film discourse about Rotten Tomatoes. It's just unbelievably stupid, and I could go on along about this for a long time. But it's, it's there's a lot of uh, a lot of arguments about Rotten Tomatoes are just like three or four different levels of blaming the messenger, where yeah. like you. The the critics don't like something, so the Rotten Tomatoes score is bad. Therefore, Rotten Tomatoes gets blamed, and it's a whole it's a whole thing. So, but, but it's a great place to find reviews, regardless. Yeah, of know. course, yes. Um, all right, and of course, you can find me online sometime. Uh, less so, you know, I haven't been able. I, I'm a person that writes at coffee shops. I've said this before. I'm going to keep repeating it until I can actually go out. And, I have a hard time writing from home, so I haven't written a whole lot for Gumastop.com lately. Uh, hopefully one day that will change again and, uh, or either I'll figure out how to somehow write at home or I'll, uh, be able to write away from home again. Um, but yeah, otherwise, uh, occasionally you can check into goombasop.com. And of course I co-host the N Express podcast with Rick along with this one. Uh, Rick, where can we find you online? You can find me on Twitter. I, I run the official Twitter account for Goombastomp, which is Goombastomp Mag. Um, of course, right on the website when I can, Goombastomp.com. And you can also listen to the video game podcast, the N-Express Nintendo podcast. And this podcast you can find on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, on the website, Stitcher. And I feel like I'm forgetting a platform, but it is every Podbean. I think it's Podbean. Yeah. Yeah, and definitely, uh, if you can, uh, leave us a rating on iTunes, uh, leave a comment, anything like that. We'd love to hear any comments. Um, and, of course, ratings help us uh, you know, get the podcast out to more people. Uh, all right, that should do it. Uh, next week, we're going to be back with a werewolf movie. <laughs> <laughs> see if you can guess which one. All right, uh, we will see you then. Yeah, yeah,
Oh, oh, oh.